All right, well, this morning we're going to look at the second half of Exodus. So Exodus 20, chapters 20 through chapter 40. And if you recall from last week, the first half of Exodus, we trace Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. And um, we saw the Passover. We saw, of course, the Exodus uh, from Egypt. And then uh, in 19, they've camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And so uh, there was a lot of action. There was a lot of movement and events that happened in the first half of Exodus. Now, in the second half of Exodus, everything that we see here is going to be taking place while they're camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. So they will be there. The nation of Israel will be camped here for 11 months. Um, And it's a fairly significant time period because God is going to reveal a lot to them about what is important. So um, it's significant. God is going to give them the law. Uh, and that's what we'll kind of look at this morning. The law or, or God's covenant, sometimes called the Mosaic covenant. <clears throat> and really it's going to speak to them about how to live as a nation. So we've been pr- tracing this promise that God gave, first of all, to Abraham, that he would make him a great nation. So we saw last week how the Israel blew up in population-wise from 70 people to a great nation in slavery in Egypt and just really probably a couple million people. You know, there's this dispute about how many Israelites there were. Uh, but anyway, we see them here this week. And now, so, so what's important then for a nation is to have laws that will govern this nation. And so God is going to give them this. It's going to be laws that will help them by uh, governing them morally, uh, governing them civilly as a, as a nation and religiously as well. So it's an important step, and and it's going to be, we'll find out it's going to be doubly important because God is now going to dwell with his people. So it's important that they know how to live in order that God might dwell with them. And really, if we were going to identify kind of an overarching theme for these chapters, Exodus 20 to 40, it might be this. God is establishing the covenant terms to to direct his people in how to live in fellowship with him since he will now dwell with them. So I'll say that one more time. God is establishing the covenant terms to direct his people in how to live in fellowship with him, since he will now dwell with them. So if we think about a covenant, and you recall that a covenant in biblical terms is a bond between two parties that should not be broken. If the covenant is kept, it will bring great blessings. But if it's broken, it will bring a curse. Uh, And so now as we think about this covenant that God is going to give his people, God's going to lay down the terms of this covenant. What, what, What is involved? What needs to take place in order for them to keep the covenant? And, uh, of course, the question then is how will a holy God be able to dwell with an unholy people? And so this covenant is laid out. And then, of course, we we have to ask the question, will Israel be able to uphold their end of the covenant? And we know the answer to that is no, uh, that they will not be able to. So then the question becomes, will God enforce the full wrath of the curse that that the covenant uh, has and uh, if Israel's going to break it? And if not, if God's not going to enforce that wrath on those covenant breakers, it will only be because of his grace. 
Uh, it's not going to be because of anything they deserve. So, so God's grace becomes an important element of what we'll look at, even as we're looking at the law. Uh, so we'll look at the law, and many times the law has been contrasted with grace, which is right, but there is actually a relationship between the two. There's a relationship between law and grace, and that's kind of what we want to hope to see this morning. And so let's think about that. You know, the focus generally of, of our studies in God's Word and, and the understanding we have of salvation is that grace is so important. You know, God has been gracious to us. So we might focus on grace always and, and overlook the law. Um, but why do, we under, why do we need to understand God's law if we're going to truly understand grace? Well, there's got to be a law. Okay, there's got to be a law. Okay, so without the law, how would grace fit in? That's a good, good question. What other? Makes us conscious of sin. Okay, makes us conscious of sin. Yeah, we'll we'll touch on that for sure. Any other thoughts on why it's important for us to understand the law? It teaches us about God's character. Okay, teaches us about God's character. God is holy. So what does that mean? Well, we get a little bit of insight into what it means to be holy when we understand how high a standard he has. Who are we following? What, what guidelines? If, we were, if, we were, if there weren't, wasn't a law, then, then, then we, would, we wouldn't have anything to follow. We would, we'd be doing okay, yeah. So, so God's... Gr- God's gracious to give us His standard. He, he hasn't left us uh, without knowledge of that standard. Yeah, so th- those are all good reasons that we want to look at the law, and we will do so this morning. So here's what we want to do first. Um, first, we need to look at the structure of these chapters um, because it really forms our outline. So take your handout out and look there at under uh, number two. There's a... You know, there's a, here's a good outline of these chapters. And um, the first point there in chapters 20 to 23 really concerns the covenant, covenant obligation. So what does the law say? Um, so we'll see that. We'll, we'll go through that. Uh, and then notice starting in chapter 24 down through the end, chapter 40, if you notice on your outline here, it's kind of indented here in a kind of an interesting way. And the reason that it's like that is because these chapters, starting in chapter 24 down through 40, form what is called a chiasm. So uh, I'll just throw that out there, right? So who knows what a chiasm is? Who can explain that to us? No clue. clue. All right. That's a good start. Here we go. Here goes. Jason's going to get it. It's a uh, literary structure that... Sort of goes in and out, so the focus is the middle point. Okay. Everything else is reflective. Yeah. On the flip side of it. Yeah. So you know, as English speakers, we 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 understand linear, right? You start at the beginning and you end at the end. Um, but in a lot of Jewish literature, they utilize this method, which is called a chiasm. Which, as Jason says, the focus is the middle. So think about chi is the Greek. Um, letter X. 
So if you think about an X, what's right at the center is, is the important. X marks the spot. <coughs> yes, it is. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not in there. But yeah, it's, it's chiasm. So C-H-I, the Greek letter for X, ism. So chiasm. Uh, so anyway, the chiasm. C-H-I-S-M. I'm sorry, I'm, sp am I, I'm saying that wrong, aren't I? Like Chisholm Trail and A in there? Yeah, there's an A uh, in there. C-H-I-A-S-M. -A there we go. We got it. Everybody got it? I've already got it. All right, so, so if you think about it, and, and your, your handout, the way that's kind of laid out there, kind of shows us that. So what's most important is in the middle. Uh, and then either leg of that X that kind of goes out from the middle, those things parallel each other. So it's almost like, you know, if you took a camera and you started out and you zoomed in on the middle and then you zoomed back out. So you're kind of seeing the context and then bringing you to the middle and then going back out. So if you were to look then at what's most important in the middle, then you would notice that the things on uh, that are on either side of it parallel each other. So here's what I mean. Chapter 24 says the covenant ceremony, and that's the promise that God will be with his people. Then you look at the kind of what mirrors that is the end, chapter 40, 34 to 38. God actually is with his people. He does dwell with them. So the promise mirrors the actuality there. And then you move in a step, chapters 25 and 30, uh, the tabernacle is described, the, the meeting place, how they will build that is described. And then in chapters 30 to 40, verse 33, that is actually fulfilled. They actually do build the thing there. And so then the middle is chapters 32 to 34. Uh, and even in that middle section where covenant disobedience and grace are seen, even those chapters kind of form a little chiasm as well. So chapter 32 the people break the covenant parallels chapter 34, God renews the covenant. And then right in the middle is chapter 33, where Moses sees the glory of the Lord. So as we look through this, that's going to be kind of what becomes very important, is God revealing himself to his people, revealing his glory to Moses there. Does that kind of make sense? All right. <clears throat> so with that in mind then, let's jump in. We'll, we'll look at the First of all, let's look at these covenant obligations. So Exodus 20 to 23. If you have your Bible, turn over to chapter 20. And I will read um, verses 1 through 21. And I think this will be fairly familiar to us. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoke smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for, the, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So this is the Ten Commandments, right? We're pretty familiar with the Ten Commandments, more or less. You know, they've been a moral standard uh, that we strive to, to keep, obviously. Um, and as we look at it there, as we, as we look then at the Ten Commandments, uh, this is basically a summary of God's law. Moses is up on the mountain, as you recall. The people are down at the base, camped around the mountain, and they've been warned not to go up to the mountain lest they be destroyed by God. And then God lays this law out. He gives the law to Moses, and this is a good thing that God has given us His law. But it does beg a question, you know, as we've kind of hinted at before. Um, and so if you recall, go back into Genesis, back into Genesis chapter 12. God has already made a covenant with His people. He made a, co a covenant with Abraham, and He promised Abraham that He would give him a land. He would uh, make him a, into a great nation, and that all nations would be blessed through him. And then if you recall from Genesis 15, that God is the one who rat ratifies this covenant. It turns out it's not really uh, going to be dependent on Abraham because God ratifies the covenant and uh, promises to keep it while Abraham is literally fast asleep. So it all depends on God. Uh, so God is going to keep his covenant by grace. He's going to do it. So then again, the question comes up, where do commandments fit into a covenant of grace? You know, and that's, kind of, that's a question as we're looking at the law here. How do these commandments fit then with this covenant of grace that God has given his people Israel? It's kind of the same question I asked before, but think about it again. Any further thoughts on that? God's law is good. Uh, so if we keep his law, you know, we will do better than if we break his law where there's, there's consequences. Also, we can't keep it perfectly. So his grace yeah. for sure allows us to, yeah. to also come to him and, yeah. and rely on him. Because we can't keep it. Yeah. I think, 
I think that's good. We, we can't do that. Yeah, well, let, let's look. Um, those are good. Yeah, go ahead, Terry. That's a good point. God, God is gracious in giving us what his standard is. We don't have to figure it out ourselves. And Israel didn't have to figure out what the laws to govern their nation would be. God, God did that on their behalf, and, and that is gracious. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Well, a couple of reasons, I think, that, that uh, are also involved here that we can look at. Um, first of all, the law teaches God's people how to image him. Uh, so think back to the Garden of Eden. What was a task that God gave mankind? It was the task to reflect Him. And, and He says this very clearly back in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, turn back over there to chapter 1. In verse 26, God says very clearly, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, so God gives man this charge. You are to represent me. You are to be my image to the rest of creation. And so if we're going to do that, if, if mankind is going to do that, and even more specifically now, as God has chosen for himself a specific people, you know, he came to Abraham and he called Abraham to be this one who would be the great nation. So if we're going to be able to do that, um, it's important for us to understand what that looks like. What would it look like for God to image himself to the world? And the law gives us a hint on the holiness of God. Look also there at uh, chapter 19, look at verse 5 in Exodus. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, so there again, this charge that Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests. So those, again, who are, act as kind of a mediator between God and, and creation, and they are to be a holy people. So how can they understand how to do this unless God gives them this standard of holiness, which he does? Um, and so uh, if we think about that, so here's God giving his law to, to give people an example of how they can image him to creation. Um, how well did they do? How well are they doing? The people camped down at the base of the mountain, God giving the law. How, how well have they done in imaging God to creation? Really bad. 
not so good, right? It, it hasn't gone well. Um, so the first way the law fits into a covenant of grace is helping us see God's holiness and therefore what is required. Uh, we need to know what the holiness looks like, but then uh, that leads us to the second reason I think that we want to focus on here. And it's that because we can't truly live a holy life, you know, the law is going to get broken. Israel breaks the law. We break the law. So the second way then that the law fits into a covenant of grace is that it points us to the only one um, who could keep it. You know, there's only one who actually came and fulfilled this mandate that God gave to Adam. So um, turn over to Galatians chapter 3. I think we get some clarity on this point, uh, on the reason for the law and how it fits into a covenant of grace. If you look in verse 17 of Galatians 3. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise given to, to Abraham, or, or the promise that God had given, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So that offspring that uh, Paul is talking about is Christ. Um, so uh, the, the covenant, the promise is put in place until the one who would be able to perfectly fulfill it comes, uh, and that is Christ. Um, so the law helps us to see then that we're truly sinners. You know, we, we will not be able to keep this law um, and we can't delude ourselves into thinking that we can be good enough to keep God's law because we look at the standard and we recognize honestly that we break it all the time. So we need one who will come to fulfill that, and that, that is Christ. So um, we, the law should help us to understand then that our faith is not to be put in, in our own righteousness. It's not to be put in us keeping this law but in the one who actually will do that. And if our faith is in him, then his righteousness will go before God and, and um, God will accept us based on that, not on our righteousness. So that's important for us to see. Another thing I think that we don't want to forget then is the third point. Um, Israel is already saved. Uh, so what do I mean by that? You know, um, uh, the ancient Israelites were not saved by keeping the law any more than we are saved by keeping the law. Sometimes people misunderstand that and think that Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law and that was in place until Christ came onto the scene and then grace uh, came into effect. But that's not actually the case. Uh, those in the Old Testament were saved um, apart from the law in the same way that, that we are. Um, look there in, in chapter 20. Look at verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is reminding them, even as he's about to give them the law, that he has already brought them out of slavery. They're not going to get brought out of slavery if they keep the law. And we talked last week that um, God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt and out of slavery is really a picture of his deliverance of all of his people out of the slavery of sin. 
Uh, so there's this image here that, that we see. And the message here, I, th- I hope we see, is that God has already saved his people even before he gives them the law. And so we see that, you know, the New Testament kind of helps us to understand that. Um, Romans 4 confirms that with regard to Abraham, that he was saved um, not by, the, by law, but by believing God through faith. Um, and then if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little more insight into that. So Hebrews 11 is a chapter that just looks back at the faithfulness of many of the Old Testament saints. Um, And verse 13 of Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then skip over to verse 39, the end of the chapter. And all these, all of these Old Testament saints, though, commend, though commended for, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So in other words, they won't be perfected or made holy and, and uh, accepted by God in a different way than we are. It will be with us. Uh, we will all be saved in the same way. So salvation comes through faith in Christ, not law-keeping. And regardless of whether we are looking back at Christ's work uh, and putting our faith in what Christ has already accomplished, or the Old Testament saints were looking forward to the promise of Christ's coming and that um, God would save them uh, through the Messiah, either way, um, they're saved and we are saved through faith. So, any questions so far on this, or any thoughts? Yes, Susan. I noticed that it refers to the Old Testament believers as saints, and sometimes we misname ourselves by calling ourselves sinners saved by grace, because in the New Testament, Paul always addresses the believers as saints. Mm Mm-hmm. He says, greetings to the saints at Rome, at Ephesus, at Corinth. He doesn't say, greetings to the sinners saved by grace. <laughs> and so we insult the spirit of grace when we call ourselves a sinner because that's what we were. That's what we were. That's what we um, were. I think that, I think both are, there's elements of truth to both of those, though, as well. We still are sinners. We recognize that. Uh, but where we practically and positionally stand before God is that we are saints. You know, when God looks at us, uh, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees saints, those who have been made holy. So it is absolutely true that we are saints just as they were saints. At the same time, it's true that we continue to sin. You know, our nature, uh, and I think when people say that we're sinners saved by grace, I think they're referring to our natural state. We, We were born sinners. We have always been sinners our salvation is only through grace. So both are true, but you're absolutely right. Um, we are, we're saints. You know, when God looks at us, he sees those that he has saved through Christ as saints. So, yeah. Well, um, let's jump then into the, this chiasm that I mentioned before, starting in, in chapter 24. Yeah, not chism that John Wayne played in the movie. <laughs> But chiasm, yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Um, so let's just let's start in the middle. Let's just go right for for what's right in the middle of that in chapter 32. If you'll turn over to chapter 32, you know again Moses is up on the mountain. Um, God is giving him the law, uh, uh, and as we think about him up there on the law, um, here's what's going. Here's what's going on below. What's that? Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. He's up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain. God's giving him the law. Then look at what goes is going on here below. Look in chapter thirty-two, um, verses one through ten. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So, uh, you know, so much for keeping God's law and imaging him to the world. While in the, at the very moment that God's giving him the law, the people are down there breaking the law. Um, and so God's righteous response to this is to disown the people. I mean, look what he says there. Um, he says in uh, verse 7, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, talking to Moses, have corrupted themselves. You know, so God essentially in that moment, uh, rightly so, I think if we're honest, is making this statement of disowning the people. But then look what Moses done. Look, at, uh, look what he does. Look in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What, what's going on here? I mean, God is going to pour out his wrath on the disobedient people that he's disowned. And then Moses comes in 
and pleads their case before God, and God relents. What, what is going on? Okay, yeah, you notice that in the appeal to God's faithfulness. Remember, God, what you promised. Are you going to keep your promises? It also appeals to God's reputation um, among the nations. Yeah, he says, God, are you going to let these people uh, be destroyed? What will the nations think of you um, that you're not powerful, that you're not able to bring your people up? Yeah, he, he appeals to God's reputation. <laughs> Surely God did not forget. Okay, so Catherine says perhaps Moses is being a picture of Christ. How so? Yeah, yeah. As Mo as um, Moses intercedes to God on the people's behalf. God then, as a re result, relents. So this is a picture of Christ, that we're, we're getting this glimpse here of how God will save his people. Um, Jesus is the one who ultimately intercedes for sinners, and God relents of his righteous judgment uh, and pours it out on Christ instead. So it's not a situation uh, where God or Moses changed God's mind. I think we're just seeing a picture of what God intends. He intends for, for the intercessor who is Christ uh, to ultimately come. And, and so as a result of all this, the, the Israel, they, they will suffer consequences. So if we were to keep reading, you know, they're, they're, 3,000 men are going to be killed because of their disobedience. So there will be consequences. Um, sin does have grave consequences. We, we need to acknowledge that. But God's gracious plan of redemption does not end at the sin of the people. The people have broken the covenant. That's not going to end um, God's promise to keep the covenant because he will be gracious. And his plan for redemption now is going to move forward. So we see that in Moses. We see him interceding and, and God uh, renews then in chapter 34, he renews the covenant with his people. Uh, so we won't take the time to read that, but you know the tablets were destroyed by Moses, right? Uh, and then God makes new tablets. He writes his law once again and renews that covenant. But let's look briefly then at the, at the center of the passage, chapter 33. Uh, so here's this kind of focus of the chiasm that we're looking at here. And let me read just verses 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And, and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Um, and so 
It's interesting here that Moses, uh, he doesn't just see God's covenant then as a list of rules to keep in exchange for some blessing. Uh, he actually sees God's covenant as the opportunity for God to dwell with his people. So what's important to Moses and what should be important to his people is not some sort of blessing that they might get, prosperity and you know, good life, whatever, but that God actually would dwell with his people. He wants the people to have a relationship with God. And he, he doesn't even want to go to the land of promise if God won't go with him. So the, the, the important thing there is God dwelling with his people. And I think that's a, a good point of evaluation for us. You know, wh what is God to, to you? Wh who is God to me? Um, would I be content if God blessed me in many ways, but he actually wasn't present with me? You know, would, would that be good enough for me? Or do I hunger and thirst for God himself such that I recognize God actually is the promise. Him being with me is actually the greatest thing. So that's something for us to think about. Sometimes we get caught up and I wish I had this or I wish God would give me this. And actually, uh, we miss the fact that God himself is our blessing. But look at what happens next in verse 18 of chapter 33. <clears throat> Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses wants to see God's glory, but God says, if, if that happened, you'd be dead. You know, my glory would absolutely kill you. Uh, but again, even in this, we, we see another picture of God's grace. Uh, God is going to allow Moses to get a glimpse of his glory, while at the same time protecting him from certain death. You know, and here again, uh, we see this in Christ. Um, God makes a way for his people to be in his presence while protecting them from the holy outlash of his glory against their sin. You know, so we see that in Christ again. God, Christ is God with us, but uh, Christ also absorbed the blunt of God's wrath uh, that should have been poured out on us. So even in that little picture of, of Moses in the cleft of the rock, we see this picture of Christ. So, well, let's zoom out then um, one notch from the center and look at the tabernacle. So on either side of chapters 32 and 34, uh, first of all is the instructions for building the tabernacle and all of the, the articles of worship. And then after, uh, starting in chapter 35, they will begin to build those things and, and put all those things together. Um, so again, this question remains, how can a holy God go with this sinful people as Moses has asked him to? They're still sinful. Um, and so the answer can be found in the tabernacle, uh, which just means tent. That, that word means tent. Um, so God instructs his people to build this tent so that he can dwell with them. And the instructions to build it 
uh, they're in chapters 30, uh, 25 to 31, then they actually build it in chapters 35 to 40. That brackets what we just saw in 32 to 34. And there's a couple of important aspects for us to see in the tabernacle and its article, articles of worship uh, that tie us back to the storyline of redemptive history. So um, first of all, um, there's an aspect of looking back into history, and then there's an aspect of looking forward uh, that we see in the tabernacle. Um, the, the, the tabernacle is going to point us backwards to the Garden of Eden, where God dwelled with his people. As you remember, at, at, that was the original way things were in the garden. And then it's going to point us forward to Christ, who came to tabernacle with man. You know, John uh, 1 14 says that Christ, God became man and dwelt or tabernacled with his people. So, in this, this tent that God uh, tells Moses to make, we, we're going to tie all this together. So, we're going to start in, back in the garden at, at creation, and then uh, we'll, we'll point forward to Christ. So, uh, over in chapter 25, real quickly, let's just read some, some snippets of, of how this comes about. So, chapter 25, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, that's the whole verse, and look over in chapter 30. 30, verse 11 says, The Lord said to Moses, and then in verse 17, The Lord said to Moses, verse 22, The Lord said to Moses, uh, verse 34, The Lord said to Moses, then in chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses. And then verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses. So seven times we get kind of the organization of God's instructions. The Lord said to Moses. So seven times the Lord speaks. What's that remind you of? Yeah. And God said, let there be light. And God said, you know, so there's seven days of creation. There's seven instructions here. And in both cases, the Lord is speaking. Um, and he is, you know, there's this element of his presence by him speaking there. So it's, it's organized just like creation. So the Lord speaks and the tabernacle, the tabernacle of his presence is to be constructed. Uh, so in a sense, this is kind of a reconstruction of God's good creation. You know, the, the great thing about the garden was that God dwelled with his people. So now he's instructing them to make a tent where he will again dwell with his people. And so um, that's, that's important. If you happen to read the chapters this week, you would have seen that just like Eden, the tabernacle uh, it contains pure gold and precious jewels, just like the garden did. And it's guarded by a cherubim, um, as we saw at the end of of the, the time in the garden. Um, and then uh, look at the evaluation. You, th you think about what God said at the end of creation. He said it, it is good. It is very good uh, when he looked back at his creation. And look at what God says then in chapter 39 when, when the um, tabernacle is all the instructions are completed there. Verse 39, verse 40, or chapter 39, verse 43 and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. So there's this kind of similar uh, 
putting an end to, to these things where God looked, he, everything was just the way he intended, and it was good. Now Moses looks, and everything was done just the way God intended. So there's this statement of goodness. And if you notice, too, another similarity here, that creation, what's the last day of the seven days of creation? It's God resting, right? It's, it's the Sabbath. Um, and then look in chapter 31 how God's instructions end uh, for, the, for building the tabernacle. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So uh, after they were to finish with the construction of the tabernacle, then they were to rest, just as God did in, in Eden. So, um, what then, one, one other similarity. What happens after God creates Eden, he's, He calls it good, what happens next? What, is, what does uh, mankind do immediately afterwards? Yeah, they immediately fall. Um, they sin and rebel against God. And if, as you think about this, Moses is up getting these instructions, and it's all good, and then immediately the people sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell, and then Israel does the same thing. They disobey God, and they worship the golden calf. So this pattern we see just continuing, and it should make, cause us to long for something better. Well, that's how we look back at it. Let's uh, look and see how the, the tabernacle looks forward to Christ. Um, and we're getting short on time, but look at chapter 29, verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar, God giving Moses instructions of how to worship. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sea of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering. As in the morning, for a pleasant aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord the, their God. Um, and so, really, there's seven instructions in here in these verses of how a sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God. So I'll run through them real quick. Um, first of all, there's to be an offering of a lamb to make atonement for sin. We see that in verse 38. Secondly, God will only meet with his people through the forgiveness of their sins, verse 42. Third, God speaks to his people through an intermediary uh, who is Moses in uh, verse 42. God will reconcile with his people, it says in verse 43. Um, also in verse 43, God sanctifies or makes holy by his glory. How will the people be holy? It will be by his glory. 
Um, six, God will dwell among his people and be their God. He promises that in verse 45. And then finally, God makes himself known in verse 46. So these are the ways and how the people will be able to dwell with a holy God. And these seven things should be familiar to us because ultimately Christ fulfills every one of these things. So we don't have time to turn to the passages, but um, as we saw that uh, God would make atonement for sins through a lamb, Jesus appears as the lamb of the sacrifice. And uh, that's clearly spelled out in Hebrews 9.26. Secondly, it is only through Jesus that God will meet with his people. John 14.6, you know. Um, no man comes to the Father except through me. Third, God now speaks to his people through the inter- intermediary of Jesus. Um, Hebrews 1, chapter 2 says that God formerly spoke through his prophets, now he will speak through the Son. Um, and then also, fourth, God reconciles with his people through Christ, Romans 5 11. Um, or the fifth one, that was fourth. Fifth, Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. You know, again, the, the God became man uh, and dwelt among them, and they beholded his, beheld his glory. Um, six, God dwells with his people through Christ. Colossians 2.9 tells us that. And then finally, it's only through Jesus does anyone know who God is, John 14.7. So all of these things that were required for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God, ultimately... Christ fulfilled. And we saw the picture of it in the tabernacle, but we see the fulfillment of it in Christ. Does that make sense? Kind of cranked through that there. Um, But the point of the tabernacle is clear. Um, Paradise is God fellowshipping and dwelling with his people. And so we're unable to be in his presence, except that he will condescend to dwell with us. Um, It is God fulfilling that promise to us. And this, again, points us directly to Christ in whom we're able to see God and be with him. Well, let's let's wrap it up um, with what perhaps is the high point of Exodus, which happens at the end of chapter 40. Um, So in chapter 24, the Moses and the elders of Israel get a glimpse of God's presence as God's covenant is confirmed. So, so Moses, the elders, they're up on the mountain and they, they get this glimpse of God's presence. But God is not yet dwelling with the people because there's not a tabernacle yet and the people are not yet acceptable to God. Um, but then look what happens in chapter 40, right at the end there, starting in verse 34. So the tabernacle has been set up, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So finally, we see God once again dwelling with his people as he did in the garden. So um, we we see this happen once again. The, The plan of redemption is not yet complete. We've got a lot to go here before we get to Christ, but we're headed in the right direction. 
You know, we're seeing how a, a holy God could live with an unholy people. So, you know, just think about that for a second. Is, is there any application, as we look at this last half of Exodus, is there any application in this for us? So there's this promise that God has made to us, um, and we recognize that he's faithful. We can look back and see it when we look forward to see the promise uh, because Christ does dwell with us through his spirit. Other thoughts? That's good. We look back and we see that. You know. So we notice that even in the law, God is gracious. Uh, even in giving this law, um, he's clearly shown us our sin, the fact that we're separated from him, we're unable to keep his law. And that's absolutely critical for us to know, right? Um, you know, it, how, how cruel would it be if God had his, his standard of holiness and he didn't even let us know what it was. But he has let us know. And so therefore we see we are unable to keep that on our own. And, and we desperately need a Savior, one who can go between God and us. So he has made then, uh, even though we're separated from him, he has made the way for, for him to be able to dwell with us or us to be able to dwell with him. God's graciousness is on display. So... And that way, of course, is Christ, and he's our only hope as, as sinners um, to be able to dwell with the Lord forever. So hopefully, when we look at this and we consider God's grace, even in the giving of the law, it will cause us to worship him, and it will cause us to rest in his grace. You know, we don't have to continue to strive to try to be good enough, because we could never be good enough. Uh, but he has given us his grace and Christ, who was good enough, and if we're... Uh, put our faith in him, then we're able to rest in the knowledge that God has, has saved us. Well, don't leave out the Holy Spirit. Right? We would never leave out the Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah, he has blessed us by dwell, indwelling in us by his Holy Spirit, yeah. It's a great point. Yeah, I was thinking about was even within the Old Testament, the Lord is dwelling with his people, but he still has to be in the tabernacle. Right. And so you see chapters upon chapters upon chapters of the details that have to go into the building of this holy place mm -hmm. for God to dwell. But now with Christ, we are the dwelling place for God in our hearts. Right. And that's the significance of that. Yeah. Is that now 
the Lord is dwelling within the hearts of, you know, within the hearts of man, mm. not in, you know, this physical tent that they had to lug around everywhere, you know, oh. the, you know, um, and so I think there's something very deep in understanding, like, the intimacy we have with Christ now, that the Lord isn't in a tent, right, where one person could only go in, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to go um, commune with him, but now he is, you know, with every single believer, yeah. Right? Intimately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm just saying it's kind of blown away by the way Paul looks at this situation and, and, and contrasts it to our own and says there was a glory that God was revealing there. Uh, the glory that has been revealed in the doctrine was so much greater. And you know, he brings this up in, in 2 Corinthians 4 to encourage them uh, of the kind of the power Yeah, yeah. The more we dwell on it, the more we meditate on it, the the more incredible that it should be to us, which should lead us to to worship, which is God's intention. So, all right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you again that you revealed the truth to us, and the truth is is that you love us, that you are gracious, you um, have done everything necessary to allow us to dwell in your presence, to be forgiven of sins, uh, to be called by your name, Lord. So help us to uh, reflect that in the way we live, the way we think, and the way we worship you, even now as we go to worship with the body. We ask it in, in Christ's name. Amen.